welcome back to another episode of the Global Get Down. My name is Belle and my co-host Gaurav and I are excited to bring you this deep dive on the World Bank Inspection Panel with incoming chair Mark Goldsmith. Join us as we walk through the layout of the panel and the key players involved in the mechanism, the panel process from request to management action plan, Mark's career background leading up to his chairpersonship and his visions for the panel's future, as well as case studies of investigations that highlight the importance of a just transition for those most impacted by climate change. Can you give us some background as to why the inspection panel was originally established in 1993? Can you tell us what, for example, whose brainchild it was, how long it was in the works from ideation through to formation and how it has evolved as a body over time since then? Gosh, that's a, that's a fantastic and, and long question. So let me try and answer it and then maybe you can, you can fill in the gaps. So yes, started in 1993, but you know it was really sort of coming up for uh, several years in the late 70s, 80s. There was much concern about uh, the way that the World Bank was looking at projects particularly from an environmental and social perspective. Um, and then it coincided that there was also a specific project in India uh, on the Namada River, a dam, where there was significant concern. There was indigenous peoples, a number over 100,000 people being resettled. And it was really you know, the culmination of that that led to uh, an actual uh, report being carried out at the Morse Commission. And from that report and other uh, another actually look at the loan book of the, the bank and again concerns on the environmental and social side and how it was being applied. Um, and a lot of, uh, you know, uh, sort of lobbying and, uh, you know, concerns being raised by the CSO community. Um, yes, it came into fruition in uh, 1993. Now, you were asking about uh, individuals. Um, I mean, there are a lot to, to name. And, and interestingly, I mean, it's 30 years later now, but uh, many of them are still around. So but Professor David Hunter, um, uh, if you look at that, uh, Laurie Udall, you know, two very uh, you know, strong advocates of, of the need for the panel in the early 90s. And again, you know, they're around Washington, uh, Professor Hunter's at AU University, Laurie Udall's uh, with her own consultancy. And then there are others as well. I mean, many others, um, you know, Dana Clark, uh, she's actually doing some consultancy with us at the moment. Um, there's uh, you know, Jonathan Fox, again, with AU University. You know, many uh, people to mention, and particularly the CSO community as well, were real drivers of it. Why did it come out and what were they trying to do? Well, it was really you know, to ensure that there was an independent and, and a transparent and something that was community-driven. And there, there'd never been anything like that. So that's really how it started in, uh, well, it was started in 1993 and the first case came in 1994. Can you explain to us then how the inspection panel fits into the broader structure of the World Bank Group and which specific bodies it actually, quote-unquote, inspects, so to speak? Sure. So um, if you think of the, the World Bank, it's sort of a, in two halves, one bit that deals with the private sector and one bit deals with the public sector. Uh, the inspection panel deals with the, 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 the public sector, um, and there's two particular parts to it, IBRD and IDA. Um, don't worry about the acronyms, but basically they are the bit that looks into and provides uh, you know, finance loans uh, to countries and, and to, you know, to governments effectively. Unlike the other part, which is IFC, International Finance Corporation, and MEGA, who provide guarantees to the private sector. So the inspection panel is only looking at environmental and social issues in relation to IBRD, IDA, the, the, the public part of, of the bank. Now, um, when we look at the you know, projects, obviously the projects are being carried out by governments. That's where the money goes. And when we do investigations, we're only uh, looking at uh, how well the bank has uh, implemented its social and environmental safeguard standards. So we're not looking directly at, at the government or the borrower or, or actually the, the, the requester. Just a quick follow-up there, does you, I know you mentioned that this is only looking at the former to public sector oriented 
um bodies of the world bank does the private sector i believe that's two other organizations do they have their own equivalent yeah they have very similar yes sorry yes they have a very similar one um called the compliance advisory ombudsman and uh, that looks at the the private sector it's a slightly different model um but both our part and and the uh, private sector part have an organization accountability mechanism and you know, effectively they have two main tools they have a a compliance part and a uh, dispute resolution part and uh, as i say it, it, it's similar but different because if you think about it, it it's private companies in, in in the private sector whether it's governments on our side so there are different challenges but uh, probably equally as challenging from the private sector as it is on the public sector part mm-hmm. can you walk us then through the process of how the inspection panel works from when you receive a case through to approval through to then the management response and the report you send out Sure. So um, I think it's worth saying that uh, you know in 2020 we we kind of gained an, another part, and in fact we're now housed in what's called the accountability mechanism, um, because what happened is we gained uh, the additional part that we're just talking about, the dispute resolution part. So the process, as currently is and been running for the last two years, is that there's initially a complaint from a requester, and that can be. somebody who believes they've been affected by a, a a world bank project from an environmental and social perspective it has to come from two people uh, to meet our initial criteria um and that goes to our initial admissibility test or intake as we like to call it and there's a little initial check there of things that would uh, ensure that it, it is something that we could uh, then look into at the eligibility stage um and these are the kind of things are oh, you know is it you know in a place that has a world bank project could it be linked there um is it an environmental social issue for instance i mean we we don't uh, we don't look at procurement that's another part of of the bank there are time limits on when we can uh, look at a request so um you know most of our project at the moment is to do with 95% disbursement there is actually for projects that have been approved a bit later there is a, a sort of slightly longer 15 months after the disbursement of the project but there is a time limit still on when we can look at it but basically uh assuming it passes that initial criteria it, it is registered um and that goes out um and then what that triggers in the bank and we're an independent part of the bank so we report directly to the to the board but that what that triggers is a management response and the management have um you know 21 working days it's, it's just over a, a month to actually produce a management response to a registered request and that will look at all the things that they've done and 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 try and identify you know how they have tackled the issues that have been raised in the request um after that happens just towards the end of that we then actually go on a um well, on on what we call a eligibility mission and we will actually go out to the country we will meet with the requesters we will meet with the the country management um all independently because there is and I'm sure we'll get onto this you know concerns of confidentiality and potential retaliation so it's all done very carefully uh, organized uh, you know as as say separately from from the banks we meet the bank and then we meet requesters and we what we do at that stage is determine whether it is eligible uh, under the criteria that is set for us and that is it you know, has to have a sort of prima facie case of harm or potential harm and it's linked to the project and it also has to have not been sufficiently addressed by the, by the bank or management as we like to call it if that is if that happens um we produce our report there's a lot of detail we're very transparent and you know, all these reports become public So uh that uh, goes to the board uh and we recommend an investigation um and on a on a objection of uh, any other business or objection of business uh, perspective they determine whether they uh want to the investigation to go ahead. Um now since as I say the last 2 years um there is now an additional stage at this point which means if they if the approval goes through that they want to do you know recommend for investigation then it then goes into an offer of a dispute resolution and it's a slightly different part of of the accountability mechanism and uh, that is that goes on for normally a, a month that offer period and it's an opportunity to determine whether the requesters and the government so slightly different parties we're looking into the bank but in this case it's the government and the actual um uh communities 
whether there's a possibility that both of them want to enter into a dispute resolution process. If they do, um, then that can uh, that goes ahead and that can take anything up to a year. In fact, it can be extended for another eight, another six months. So it could be up to eight, 18 months. Um, if they don't, then uh, the investigation uh, kicks off and then the investigation goes through a series of stages, which I can go through in a bit, bit of detail. But basically, it takes about six months. It's uh, a number of different things. We look at documents, we do interviews, we go back out to site. Uh, we deploy or employ uh, a number of specialist consultants, depending on the area, and would actually, uh, you know, they would be a very important part of the investigation to ensure that we really got to understand what was happening uh, and our fact finding and all the data was sort of triangulated. And then we produce uh, an investigation uh, report. Uh, that report goes, um, well, initially actually the report, there is uh, some time that's submitted to the, to the board but there's also some time for a management action plan to be developed by the bank. Um, and that management action plan is looking at the findings in our report. We don't make recommendations, so we make findings. They look at uh, the findings and the develop a management action plan. And it's a combination of that management action plan and our report that goes to the board, the main part of the World, World Bank. Um, and then they have an oversight uh, of looking to see whether that management has sufficiently covered all the issues that we got in, 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 in the findings. Um, there's also a brief period before that, which I, I probably should mention. It's, it's, it's one, it's a tool that again, we've only recently got, it's a very important one. But after the report is submitted, um, we have an opportunity um, which we use to go out and talk through the report uh, with the community. Um, and that gives us a, a chance to explain our findings to them. Um, and also for them really to gain agency into what then happens next, because they're actually involved in consultation with the management action plan with management. So they can you know, better understand the findings and be in a better position to contribute to the management action plan. And that goes through in the consultation period. So assuming the board uh, you know, comes to a conclusion on the, uh, on the map, the management action plan and the uh, investigation report, um, then that um, has, you know, that, that then gets basically uh, approved and uh, that goes ahead. And we now also have a verification tool, which we've not yet used, but after a year we could uh, potentially carry out a verification monitoring of the management action plan, although that hasn't yet happened. First off, thank you for a very thorough review of how the inspection panel works. That answers a lot of questions, but it also raises like a hundred more. Um, <laughs> So just to clarify, there's something that confused me earlier when I was first introduced to the concept of the inspection panel. You can't take up cases, and correct me if I'm wrong, can you not take up cases without explicit recommendation from those two or more affected parties? And this work confused me because all the panelists, the three panelists at any point in time, they are experts in developing country issues, right? And like issues of economic development and working in these contexts. So I'm a bit confused about why the inspection panel is structured in such a way that the three panelists can't, for example, take up requests on their own expertise or on their own just knowledge. Because I'm sure in your personal capacity, even in your, in your professional capacity, you would have been exposed to many other cases which could potentially come under the purview of the inspection panel. So, and I'm assuming this goes back to the 1990s in the way the inspection panel was sure. first created, but what's the logic behind it being a requester-only sure. process? Sure. So, so, so let me, I'm going to answer that question in a second, but let me just cover something a little bit before you, you touched upon the, the panel experience. I think it's probably worth just, just indicating that a bit. So the, it's a three-person panel, the inspection panel, and they're selected from different geographies in the world. So at the moment, there's one from the UK, that's me, there's one from Sri Lanka, and there's one from Nigeria. But they're also selected for their speciality expertise. So I'm an environmental specialist, uh, Rami Kunanagan is from Sri Lanka. She's a social specialist. And then Ibrahim Pam is, uh, is a legal uh, specialist. So you're right, we have a great deal of expertise between the three of us and then as a whole supporting team as well. I think the question you're getting at, and, and it's a good one, is uh, you know, sort of self-initiation. You know, can we get requests? Can we start an investigation from elsewhere? Um, um, the bar is deliberately set high. 
um, for potential investigation. We are the last port of, of call. Um, ideally, we wouldn't get any investigations. Ideally, the, the four to 500 uh, projects that a bank approves every year, you know, all the standards would be applied appropriately. But there are a number of possibilities if they don't go well for them to get sorted way before they come to the inspection panel. So there'll be a, a, a grievance redress mechanism within the project. Um, there's also uh, a, a GRS G grievance redress service that, that, that management runs. So there are you know, two, at least two opportunities uh, for management uh, of the bank to pick up the issues and hopefully have solved them way before they get to get to us. So we only look at the ones that have kind of got through that. And in fact, it's one of our criteria that they must have checked with management that, that uh, before uh, it can actually get approved by us, that it comes to us. Um, and then, yes, it has to have two requests. So it makes sure it is a one, a very robust um, you know, concern of, of local people and you know, the potential for, for harm or actual harm. And, and, and two, it, it's, there's been some attempt to try and resolve it at a, at a management level. Now, you could say, you know, why don't you self-initiate? But it is a, you know, we are looking to do two things. One is the, the bank is looking to learn from an accountability perspective, but we're also looking to solve, uh, uh, provide effectively remedy to local people on a specific concern. And it's that community-driven part of it, which is you know, one of the sort of founding principles, as, as I mentioned before. So then since this partnership, almost like an informed partnership with local people who are affected parties by potential World Bank projects, since that partnership is so key to the inspection management functioning the way it should, um, I'm just wondering how you've let local people know that you as a body actually exist. Are there provisions for local language translations and how at the base of it do affected parties actually know how to reach out to you in case everything else has failed and the grievance yeah, yeah, I mean, it is you know, probably been one of the sort of main concerns you know, about the mechanism from its initiation. You know, certainly in the early 90s, it was one of the main concerns. You know, how do people know about you? Obviously, since the 90s, you know, technology has improved you know, and we have a you know, fully functional website you know, with hopefully a relatively simple to fit in uh, intake form in, in, in multiple languages. But, you know, internet isn't everywhere. It's, it's further than you think, but, but it's not, you know, to many of the places that we get requests from. So we do do outreach. So we do go on um, virtual and on physical visits to places and, you know, let people know about what we're doing. Um, and we do do you know, information um, provisions. We do, you know, conferences, others, things like uh, for um, you know, technical people who are involved in the area, so technicians, people who are carrying out environmental impact assessments, you know, conferences like IAIA, the environmental assessment uh, conferences. So we do look to do it in many different ways as possible. But I think it's probably also worth mentioning that, 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 that it's not necessarily directly that we make the, the best communication. It's probably you know, best through or most commonly through the civil society organisations. And the civil society organizations are at two levels. So there's the international ones who very much understand our, our, our safeguards, our, our, our policies or the bank's policies, but it's also the local CSOs. So the local civil, civil society organizations, sometimes they team up with the international ones. And it's the combination of those that really, I think probably best get the message over to the people. But there, there is this mechanism that if you've tried to go anywhere else and you really are at the last port of call, there is a possibility they will listen to you. Um, and you know, they have a track record of you know, bringing it to the highest level of, of, the, of the bank and for uh, you know, management action plans to be carried out. That, that definitely makes sense, thank you. I was hoping we could move on now to introducing you as the incoming inspection panel chair, as um, if you could tell us a bit about your background, the career path you briefly, just briefly about the career path you've taken to get here, and then if you could segue that into what your ideas and visions are for this one-year chairpersonship of the inspection panel. Sure. So, I mean, I've got a, a broad experience in the both the public and the private sector, um, mainly emerging markets, and mainly, you know, nearly always on environmental and social issues. 
Um, so, but I, I like to actually almost go back to my roots. I, I actually started with an engineering degree, and actually, I think that's actually benefited me a lot. And, and then had a you know follow-on environmental uh, degree on top of that, on you know, a master's level. Um, and then have worked uh, for a multinational. I worked for Shell for a while. I worked in management consultancy. But then, you know, the, the, the um, area that became very relevant to this, I work for CDC now, British International Investments, the UK Development Agency, in the arm that was looking at trying to uh, ensure more money in their sort of, they supported the private sector, uh, went forward. Um, and then I spent a number of years in what we call a, a general partner called Actis, which is an emerging market uh, investor. Uh, and I was the ESG or the res- head of re- responsible investment in that uh, organization and ran it for 10 years and looked at many different companies, uh, many different sectors from, from mining to, to banks, to energy, to roads. Um, and it always trying to ensure that uh, the environmental, social and governance standards were were kept. And interestingly, uh, we were talking about the private sector arm of it. We, we have basically applied the IFC performance standards, so the, the, the private sector part of that. Um, and then uh, I, I basically had an opportunity to set up my own consultancy in 2015 and went on to do a number of different things. Uh, probably the most relevant again, I was on the board of Aneo, the power company of Cameroon for some time. Uh, and again, that was very much looking at the environmental and social governance issues, as well as being a non-executive director of that, and did a number of assignments helping funds with their ENS issues, particularly in emerging markets, particularly infrastructure in Africa. And then could you tell us about how this, um, how what led you to the inspection panel to take up a position as a panelist and what your ideas and visions are? Sure. Well, I, I, I've literally you know, worked from uh, I, one of my assignments. I actually worked for a project developer trying to build a hydroelectric plant in, in Sierra Leone. And another one, I was uh, working with effectively the money, trying to apply the standards, uh, working with the development agency. Um, so I, I really felt I had a, a good you know, cross-section understanding of the different views and the different challenges. Um, so a, a, an agency that kind of looked at a mechanism that had an oversight and looked at the accountability, I felt that I would be a very good candidate for that because I kind of seen things from many sides and I know the challenges. You know, usually people want to get things and do things correctly, but you know, there are challenges from where they are that make that happen. And I'm just, I was aware of those. So I saw you know, the World Bank Inspection Panel as sort of the premier organization for doing for that. And, and you know, as I mentioned earlier, you know, we are a combination of, of talents and, and, and specialities. And it just happened that uh, they, they were looking for the environmental specialist and the, the north-south. Um, so you know, somebody from Europe could, could join the panel. Um, so yes, that very much uh, work, worked out. On my thinking, I mean, I literally, uh, this is the first interview I've done as uh, chair of the inspection panel. I was literally uh, the last chair stepped down on Friday. So uh, I go into my new painted office on on, on Monday, uh, which I'm very much looking forward to. Um, And it is going to be a really interesting year. Uh, Yeah, the bank uh, has a new vision. Uh, you know, eradicating poverty uh, with a uh, on a sustainable planet or a livable planet. So, um, you know, there's a lot of money going into climate-related finance, and we can maybe come back to that in, in a second. But, it, you know, it's a big year for the bank. It's a big year for us. Um, you, we mentioned the accountability mechanism. Uh, has just been implemented in the last sort of two or three years. Um, we're having a review of that to see how it works. Um, so that's going to be coming up. And then we've got some really interesting cases as well. Uh, there's one just coming up in Tanzania, which is, uh, I think, going to be a very interesting and challenging case. Um, so there's plenty of sort of day job work, but I don't want to let the opportunity go by without actually taking the inspection panel forward as well. And I do think it, it probably needs to, to, to evolve. Um, it is an incredibly well-run and you know, amazing organization, and the work it's done for the last 30 years is incredible. And it will be very much building on that, evolving on, on, on that. But I think there are there's sort of two areas that I think I really want to take forward. One is we produce these fantastic um, investigation reports, but they're very technical. They're 100 page plus, um, and they are quite challenging for non-technical people to, to read and understand. 
And so we're going to be looking at ways that we can better leverage this information. There's so much that people could learn from these investigation reports, not just the bank, but the wider sort of stakeholders. And so we're going to be looking at ways of using media, videos, um, non-technical summaries to, to better output this information. Um, and also sort of showcasing the individuals in the panel as well. So more, more video, more podcasts, that sort of type of thing. So that's one area. And then the second area is we are starting to see uh, more projects coming to us. And we had one uh, well, last year that I investigated uh, in relation to, to climate change and particularly to do with adaptation. And I do think we need to be thinking about how we get ready for that. Um, and it's all around this, this, this sort of terminology called a just transition. You know, a just transition being ensuring that you don't leave people behind. You know, you've got projects which may be you know, very good from a you know, solving climate change or adapting to climate change, but they may also uh, not ensure everybody you know, gains from them. And, and, the, and the, the project that I was actually doing investigation in Togo was exactly that. And I think we're going to see more of those. And I want to make sure that we are ready as an inspection panel, if, if and when we receive requests in that area, that we can react quickly to them. We'll get back to case studies in just a second because there's a lot to unpack there. But I just had a question about just to try to understand the other side of this equation where we try to understand who the requesters are or the affected parties and their position in all of this. I noticed that in the just flipping through a couple of the cases on the inspection panel website, most, if not all of the requesters that did submit a complaint chose to remain anonymous. Um, and I was just wondering why this is. Is it something to do with their placement or positioning in rural contexts where they're more vulnerable than other people could be? What, what's the background that they come from? Okay, so to, first off, I mean, it, it's really confidential rather than anonymous, but you, you are right. Um, you know, a, a number and an increasing number, I think in the last two years, it's over 80% of the requesters have, have asked to be uh, uh, confidential. Um, you know, why is that? Um, there can be a number of reasons. Um, if you look at the countries that, that, that the bank operates in, um, it can be you know, quite a concern for uh, you know, potential um, reprisals um, and intimidation reprisals or INR as we call it. Um, and so, yes, requesters may feel that it's better that they just stay confidential so that they uh, are not um, you know, readily identified by the government, they may, they may be, have concerns that there are going to be uh, reprisals. I mentioned earlier also about uh, you know CSOs and particularly local CSOs can come into play at this point because they may be a, another avenue for uh, people with a request to be able to sort of voice their concerns and coordinate better without having you know, that risk of intimidation and reprisal being so, so great. So that yeah, that certainly is uh, is an issue and and it's one that we are always looking to to see how best we can manage now from a practical perspective you know we we can't guarantee anything and in fact as soon as we get a concern of intimidation reprisal we will notify the management of, of the bank because it's them who can probably you know make it you know, uh, as safe as possible by for instance talking to the government and saying you know they have made a request this is part of our process you know please let it go ahead uh, without any intimidation or appraisal. So we, we do make that call at that level. And then there are practical things that we have to do as well. So um, you know, we will uh, ensure all our organisation on the ground is separate. Uh, we, we may use different phones. And we will absolutely ensure that when we visit uh, the, the community, that we're on our own. You know, we're not being accompanied by management and we're not being accompanied by the, the, the government or the, or the, the project office, which is part of the government. Uh, thank you, Mark, for helping us get a better idea of where the inspection panel fits into the World Bank apparatus, as well as your career leading up to your chairpersonship and the key principles and practices of the panel. Um, I wanted to transition to talking um, about case studies. And like you mentioned, over the past decade, the bank has um, been implementing climate adaptation projects in, a, in an attempt to address the impacts of climate change. And... I was reading up on one of these, um, the West Africa Coastal Areas Resilience Investment Program, um, and we'll refer to it as the TOGO project throughout this episode. Uh, can you explain the objectives of the 
Togo project and what led to the request for investigation in the first place? Sure. So, um, you know, th this is a, you know, a very good example of a, you know, a well-intentioned project, which in principle, you know, people wanted to go ahead. So this is in, in, in Togo, which is, you know, it's not a big country, sort of nine, 9 million people. And actually the coastline is only about uh, 55 kilometers uh, long. So not a huge coastline, but it's a very important coastline. And that the, the, the Togo project uh, it was actually two subcomponents of what they call the, the, the WACA project or the West Africa Coastal Areas uh, project. Um, and it was really putting uh, coastal protection measures in t on two parts of, of, of the beach in, in, in Togo. So that was what the project was doing and you know, much needed. I mean, if you look at the erosion rates in, in, uh, in Togo and particularly, in fact, all of West Africa, you know, on average, it's like one to two meters a year. And locally, it can be over 10 meters. So you can have over 10 meters of beach going a year, depending on what you have sort of further up the shore and, and, and whether sediment is being transported, which, you know, there's a lot of technical elements to it. But uh, yes, I mean, basically, there's only so, so much sediment that can actually be moved along the coast. And if you have it in one place, then you tend to lose it a bit further along the, uh, along the line of the coast. So that was the, the, the project. Um, as far as the requests are concerned, I mean, fundamentally, this is a, a, a fishing community. Uh, and um, I, I think you, it's probably worth just understanding you know, the different types of fishing, because that was very important from the requester perspective. So um, just simplistically, there were sort of two types of, 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 of boats that people were using, and then one particular type of fishing, which was on the beach. So the, the two boats uh, were to do with you know, large-scale fishing and then smaller-scale fishing, uh, and that was going to be less affected by the, uh, by the project. But the um, community and the requesters uh, to do with the, the last form of fishing, called beach seine fishing, were and are very affected by the project. And, and the reason is this. And basically, beach seine fishing involves having two to five kilometer nets. So this is very long nets that are uh, taken out pretty much first thing in the morning, happens six days a week. Um, and you have between two teams, two to five kilometers apart, and they get stretched right out to the sea. And then as the day goes by, they gradually pull the nets coming in. And that's a traditional type of fishing that's gone on for, for a long time. And it, it's, it's a community type of fishing because toward the end of the day, uh, a lot of the community gather and at the ends of those nets, you can have 50, 60, 70 people on them. So you've got the, the, the fishers, the, the, the fisher people, um, but you've also got local community pulling those nets. Um, and then when the, the catch is caught, um, the fish is distributed as well. So you have you know, the, the, the formal fish distributed and there's a whole value chain which we can talk about in, in a second but then there's also you know, going right down to you know children who you know maybe it's the only protein they have in the week uh, they'll be picking out a fish for, from that that technique so it's a very important source of, of food as well as being a, a livelihood for people now if i look at the, the project what it was doing uh, was putting quite hard coastal solutions in place so this was hard infrastructure. And what I mean by that was this in one part was groins. So this was um, you know, long uh, little piles of stones, probably best ways of describing it, but, but really being put you know, uh, perpendicular to the beach to try and uh, slow down the amount of sediment erosion. And then there was another uh, technique, which was a, an emergency technique or experimental technique being tried out as well, which involved these concrete pipes uh, over uh, a number of uh, different villages or five villages in another area of, of Togo. And the thing is, um, these particular type of techniques, whilst they might uh, help on the erosion perspective, they actually dramatically disrupt that type of beach stain fishing. And what we were looking for the project to do is to recognize that uh, because it hadn't done it in, in its initial assessments. Uh, and what it then needed to do is ensure that, that you know, those people you know, were brought back to the same level of, of, of livelihoods. And then just one more point on this. Um, you know, when you look at 
things like fishing, it, it isn't just the people who fish are who are impacted. It's the whole value chain. So it's the what they call the marriers, which tend to be women who, who process the fish. Uh, it's the people who take the fish to the market. It's the people who mend the nets. Um, it's the people who then sell the fish. It's the restaurants. It's everybody gets impacted by this. So um, it, it is quite a long uh, supply chain value chain that gets impacted if that type of fishing is disrupted, which is what happened in this particular project. Mm -hmm. And speaking of initial assessments, um, it seems that many of the panel's findings resulted from a lack of like thorough research and understanding during the initial stages of screening and feasibility analysis and construction, um, and that in inevitably snowballed into greater impacts on the livelihoods of those involved in the fishing value chain, like the marios and the restaurants um, that supply the fish. So we talked about the inspection panel being community-driven and requester-led in earlier in the episode. I'm curious to know if the panel's findings um, in Togo led to any policy changes within the bank, like especially to do with the consultation of local stakeholders and community members during the beginning stages of a project. Okay, if it's okay with you, I kind of like to to, to widen that actually, because I, I think I think in a way it would be good to talk about you know how the bank learns from 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 the panel and and you know policy changes is one but but let me just go through examples so so the one we're talking about at the moment you know togo on on that one i mean really it was to do with two sub components so um it was really to do with ensuring that they uh that their livelihoods and particularly that you know the fishing aspects that they then got back up to a level where they could continue or, or do something else and, and also ensure that their livelihoods were, were maintained um so that was very much a, a local level improvement probably wasn't a, a direct standard change on, on that one if you look at something like um i mean last yeah, I, the case actually um, came before my time, but actually only went to board uh, last year, uh, Indian Rural Water uh, project uh, across four states in India. And these states are the size of uh, you know, small countries, so pretty important case. Um, if we look at that case, um, yes, there were issues to do with environmental management plans, um, environmental data sheets, which were wrong with the particular subcomponents of the project in one state. But what management did on that one is they then relooked at the whole of the four states. And in fact, over 300 environmental management plans were changed and over 900 environmental data sheets were, were improved. So again, it wasn't a kind of global policy change for the bank, but it was more significant than just the sort of the local of that particular subcomponent of that project. If we take the next stage up, I, if you've looked back at our history, probably you know, one of the most sort of famous landmark cases in the last sort of 10 years uh, were in 2016 and 2018 in um, DRC and, and Uganda. Uh, and they were when the panel first had the issue of, of gender-based violence come up. And on that particular, uh, on those particular cases, um, the, the management, the bank did a number of things which were uh, which changed the way the whole bank operates going forward, including you know, producing guidance documents. There's a whole guidance documents about uh, what we call influx management. But that's when you know, construction workers come into a place and how they should behave. There's requirements for codes of conduct to be signed, uh, which was new and, and, and particularly in relation to GBV. So that changed the way the whole bank actually operates from, from a, a guidance and policy perspective. Um, and, and then there is a sort of more difficult to directly link, but there are changes that are made. So all the projects I've talked about so far have been um, uh, looked at, investigated under the uh, environmental and social safeguards of the bank. Now, five years ago, uh, they were replaced by the environmental and, and, and social um, framework, ENS framework. Um, and they are new standards uh, that, are, that are, or policies that apply to bank projects that are approved uh, after 2018. So they basically mean that any new projects after 2018 uh, that uh, are approved by the bank uh, have to apply this new set of standards, which are which are stricter um, and have more detail and more specificity. Um, and you know, did any panel cases contribute to those? Um, 
I can't say specifically, but certainly you know, the kind of areas that have been improved in there are areas that have come up in, uh, in, in panel projects. So issues of resettlement, indigenous people, of consultation, on the environmental side, things like biodiversity. These are all areas that have increased you know, dramatically in standards under the new ESF. Okay, thank you for sharing that. Um, yeah, the Togo case is a great example of the implementation challenges that result from climate projects. Um, and you mentioned the new standards of the World Bank. Um, do these new standards address um, implementation challenges? On, and how does the bank plan to overcome these implementation challenges moving forward? Is it just, you know, involving more um, indigenous community members and doing more research in the during the initial stages of a project to th like thoroughly understand uh, the workings the intricate workings of the community and you know the associated value chains um, or like is there anything else that the bank plans to do yes i mean as i say we tend to be looking backwards rather than forwards so we haven't investigated the case so this is me really me reading the standards and trying to interpret what will, what will happen but certainly i see a lot of importance of the, the bank ensuring that the the project so the government has capacity to do the kind of things you were talking about you know better environmental assessment better uh, consultation processes um, if, if you're looking at indigenous people free prior informed consultation ensuring those things happen better so I, I think we will see it um, and those standards do require it to, to actually happen as, as we go forward Mm -hmm. And we were talking about the concept of a just transition earlier. Um, how does this case or other cases that you've mentioned relate to that concept? Sure. So, I, I mean, it, it's interesting this because we only looked at the, the one uh, you know, with two subcomponents in, in Togo, which were these two you know, hard solution um, you know, concrete groins and concrete uh, pipe, or stones and, and, and pipes. However, um, when we uh, were doing our investigation, we had a coastal specialist with us um, and uh, Professor Larissa Naylor from uh, Glasgow University. And she was incredibly helpful in us understanding uh, more longer term issues around climate change and this kind of project. And this is an adaptation project. So when we were with the community, uh, and I talked about earlier on the stage when we were talking about the uh, going back and talking about our report. It enabled us to go back and talk about um, what's going to happen on that coast in the next 30, 50, 100, 300 years. And what you, you see there is there's going to be sea level rise. And it's predicted to be a metre in 100 years. It's predicted to be three metres in, in 300 years. So that's going to impact their input into the management action plan. Uh, what happens next on these emergency works where they're having a new uh, a new project coming in. Um, and what we're trying to ensure is that there is a just transition. So yes, there is going to be a project that helps them from a climate change perspective, as in stopping or adapting. But that project is going to be good for them, hopefully, in the long term, if they understand these other issues. So it, it may be that actually you know, that, that, you know, a resettlement or you know, a policy change in a particular area might be important. So that's a sort of general point rather than specific to Togo. But it, it may be that, that um, you know, we need to be looking at the long term and ensuring that you know, the project works for people in that long term transition, as it were. Mm hmm. Mm -hmm, yeah. And speaking of long term transitions, how does the inspection panel remain objective in its work on the ground? And so are there any key principles that are enshrined in the training given to um, investigators or other staff on the ground? And like, how does the world how does the panel like balance this need for like helping communities in the long run while also like maintaining their like integrity in the um community the wider community structure of their of their society okay so, so the first part of that is really on our own team and then maybe come on to the, the community in, in a second so on our own team um so 
we we obviously have uh, a number of different levels of, of, of uh, specialists from you know, junior to senior investigators as well as the panel who have a huge amount of uh, experience uh, so that's the starting point um yes uh particularly more junior members they go on training on environmental and social management systems uh, the new esf for instance is, is training that comes up but I would say by far more important is the, the coaching and training that is done by the, the individuals, uh, the more senior people to the junior people, the panel to the, to the junior people, and particularly when we're out on, on this ship. Um, because um, these are you know, unique cases nearly always, and there's nearly always new learning areas, and it does you know, require a wide variety of understanding of which you can't learn from a from a from a book or a page or a training course. You, you really need to get out there and have somebody who's experienced those before. So there's a lot of training effectively on the job, and then we have a very open um, you know, discussion format when we consider an investigation. So a team will go out and do um, you know, preliminary, for instance, eligibility assessment, and then they'll come back and there'll be a big discussion amongst the whole team. Some of that is, uh, you know, most of that is obviously determining where to go next, but also that's a good learning exercise for everyone as well. So that's how it works from, from our own team perspective. Um, from the, the question on the requesters you were asking, what was that? Mm, oh yeah, I was just wondering more about how, in terms of the bank balancing like this need, this like wanting the community to have a just transition in the long term while also making sure that the integrity of the community and their like society remains intact. Like I was just wondering how staff on the sure. ground or investigators kind of like walk that fine balance. Sure. So, I mean, I, I guess always we are trying to ensure that we, or we ensure that we may remain, um, have a good relationship with, with the requesters. I mean, if they're going to talk to us about their concerns, their, 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 about the project, they need to be sure that we're going to be objective. You know, we're going to ensure the confidentiality if we've, we've asked it. So they have to have you know, reassurance. So there's lots of um, meetings, privy meetings, uh, maybe virtually, often working through a representative with them, um, ensuring that they stay on site. And also we spend some time understanding you know, the society that, that, that that's there as well. So there may well be uh, a chief. Um, there may be a, a whole hierarchy of which we you know, we work hard to understand and work through when we do the consultation uh, uh, discussions with the community. So that's really um, really important. When we're talking to them, um, obviously. Uh, many people we speak to uh, don't speak a language that, that, that we come with, although you know, many of the teams speak many different languages. So we will always have a translator with us who will speak the local language. It may be a, a tribal language. Uh, in, in Togo, it was Awe, which is a local tribal, tribal language. Um, so that then helps the next part of, of that sort of exchange of, of, of communication. Um, but even that's not not enough. It, it, it's much more than that. And in fact, um, when we did the, um, it's the non-verbal communication. So when we did the uh, discussion of the report in Togo, we actually went to uh, there with A3 diagrams where we spent quite some time showing people pictorially what was going to happen on the coast. And it, it's all about trying to get a, a level playing field for the requesters, providing the community and the requesters uh, with agency effectively so that they can input to processes going forward in a way that, that is level to the, all the specialists who are on the project side who will have been, you know, been trained in environmental and social and project issues so that they can genuinely understand the issues and have a very strong uh, input and it, it is their input based on what they want to actually happen in that place. And therefore, you know, hopefully going forward, we get that just transition. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you for that. And you mentioned um, earlier um, about an investigation in Tanzania. Um, I was just wondering if you wanted to briefly touch on that and the objectives of that project. And does it relate to 
or is it similar to Togo in the sense that it kind of spotlights spotlights the socioeconomic consequences of climate change adaptation measures, or if it's or is it different in any way? Okay, so that, that one's at a different stage. I can talk about it up to a certain point, and then I have to kind of pause because we're literally um, about to go on the investigation stage. So it's it's basically completed the eligibility stage where we recommended an investigation. Um, and then it's been through the offer of dispute uh, resolution, which hasn't been taken up. So it's now, we're now literally um, just recruiting the consultants to help us. Uh, and we put together an investigation plan. In fact, you can look on the website and actually see the investigation plan. Um, it is quite a sort of unique uh, area that this investigation is looking into. Um, so it's probably worth just giving a bit of background first about the project and, and then uh, you'll see you know, why it's going to be a, a challenging investigation, but I think probably a very important one. So the project um, is to do with um, uh, the, the, the actual Tanzania project is uh, sustainable parks in, in Tanzania. So the project is supporting various activities to do with um, rangers uh, providing um, certain activities and things like beekeeping, etc., in the southern circuit of the uh, of the uh, national parks in Tanzania, it's called the Ruha National Park. It's the particular park where the uh, request came in. Now, in that area um, that we are particularly looking at, uh, there has been uh, some discussion and and challenges around land, particularly since two thousand and six, when the park was extended to include a number of villages. Now, even though those villages were included uh, uh, and resettlement processes started, and this is way before the project started, uh, which was 2016-2017, um, the, 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 there are people still living there. In fact, you know, some of those villages have electricity, some of the schools are still running there. So it, it, it is still some functioning villages in, in those locations. Um, and there's also agriculture going on in that location, and there's also water being used for hydroelectric power. So there's a great competition for the use of land in that area for this particular project. Um, so when the request came in, um, and it was really uh, to do with three issues. One was to do with resettlement, one was to do with indigenous people, and one was to do with um, excess violence um, in relation to the implementing agency called TANAPA and the local community, uh, particularly uh, in, in relation to cattle uh, cattle seizing. That was the allegations. Uh, when we did the eligibility uh, invest, uh, part of the investigation, um, we determined that from an indigenous people's perspective, although there are indigenous um, people in the area, uh, indigenous peoples like the, the, the Maasai, it isn't that bit of land that they are culturally linked to, which is what's required under the World Bank Indigenous people's policy. So um, that wasn't an area that we could take forward. That didn't meet the criteria. Um, on the um, resettlement issue, uh, although people have been moved since 2006, the 2016 project, which was initiated by the bank to do with sustainable parks, um, wasn't you know, a, a point of which or a, a linkage could be made with any particular resettlement. And in fact, um, there is uh, discussions going on in, in, at the moment in Tanzania about a, a further looking at that area and further resettlement. But until it's approved by the, the president, that, that doesn't actually become formal. And therefore, there is no formal resettlement taking place by the, um, by the park in that area at the moment. So again, it wasn't an area that we could um, uh, recommend an investigation. However, on the third area, um, which was this excess violence by TANAPA, particularly during, during patrolling activities, and they're patrolling, looking out for, for poachers in, in, in the park, um, we did find a prima facie case that, that they had uh, used uh, excessive violence. Um, and that is where the investigation is, is focusing. Now, I mentioned, you know, we only investigate the bank. So what we're doing is we're looking at uh, the due diligence and the monitoring the bank did in relation to the implementing agency with TANAPA, particularly in relation to the interactions 
uh, they have with the community, particularly around patrolling and, and cattle stealing. Um, I did have a question about, and I know there was some resources on this online, but I'm wondering how the inspection panel functioned during the COVID-19 pandemic for about two years when every all of these places were potentially under lockdown, were case visits, um, were there a possibility back then? If not, then how did you kind of replicate that same experience of engaging sure. with local stakeholders? Sure. So, so I think we, we learned a lot. Um, I think we probably the biggest thing we learned was how important face-to-face meetings are, actually. Um, and you know, if you look at climate change, I'm, I'm all for you know not people traveling when they shouldn't and, and air flights. But I think when you get to some of the serious issues that we look at, it is important to get there on, on, on the ground. If I think of two uh, cases that I was directly involved with during COVID, um, we, they kind of show two ways of approaching it, depending on the actual case. So we had a, a case in Uganda, uh, which was to do with uh, um, communities who were concerned about resettlement uh, and, and a, a drainage project in, in Kampala. Um, and on that particular case, even though it was, it was during the COVID, we actually managed to do the eligibility uh, work and actually recommend a uh, investigation. And the way we did that was by incredibly challenging but virtual interviews. Um, and uh, I, I can remember a whole day of literally going one by one of community members of you know, 20 minutes when they were in a hotel in Kampala and, and the team was back in, 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 in Washington. Um, so it, it, it was really difficult, but we got help from a local CSO there, civil society organization, who enabled the, the community to come to a place where they didn't have the intimidation reprisal concerns and be able to talk to us without, say, that, that, that worry that, 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 that the, the government or anybody else could sort of overhear what they were saying and that sort of type of thing. And, it, and we felt we had enough information through that and all the vast amount of research we did on documents uh, to recommend an investigation. Now, that actually investigation then went to dispute resolution uh, and actually went to dispute resolution agreement. So that, that's actually closed from a different perspective. But from your COVID question, it was one that was effectively we managed to complete the process during COVID. I had another one in Nepal, which was a, a dry port. Again, this one was to do with whether uh, land had, had, had been taken for the dry port, which were from local people. Um, and we did a lot of uh, work on looking at it uh, virtually, uh, you know, all sorts of actually quite sophisticated calls with, with, the, with the community and the representatives of the community, uh, looking at specific maps and where houses were. Um, but in the end, and actually the, the team, and I was leading the team, got a lot of kind of pressure to make a recommendation, um, we said, no, we need to wait till COVID finishes and make a visit. So we did actually wait on that one. And then the team, which I led, went out to uh, Kathmandu and, and we actually you know, spent a week in Kathmandu <coughs> looking at the issues on the ground. And, and then we felt comfortable because it was so finely balanced where specific things actually were and what the project had, had done. And all the looking virtually and the questions virtually just wasn't enough to make us feel comfortable that we can make the decision. So that's sort of how, how we managed. I, I would say also that, that you know, during COVID, um, you know, we, we were out of the traps, as it were, uh, very quickly, uh, as soon as we could uh, on, on missions, because we recognise the importance of the face-to-face -face interaction. Um, but then that required us to take uh, you know, quite ex extensive COVID protocols. So, for instance, you know, the whole community meetings in, in Nepal, uh, I was doing behind a mask. Um, you know, you've got all the checks at airports, you've got all the sanitizer you take with you. you know, it, it was, you know, we did a quite a strong risk assessment on, on that to ensure that, that you know, we weren't putting people at risk from a COVID perspective, uh, because uh, you know, obviously that's not, not you know, we don't want to be doing a mission and then you know, causing a problem from a COVID perspective. Did you ever know that you'd end up here or like how does it feel to be you know the incoming chair for the world bank inspection panel mm -hmm. and how has your how have your previous experiences or how do you envision that they'll help you moving forward in your role 
Yeah, it, it, it's funny. I mean, I, I, I kind of every career step I get to the next one, I almost sort of see the previous step as as, as training and coaching for it. So, <laughs> so I did the, my degrees in engineering and environment, and then I worked for Shell in the environmental and, and, and safety area, and and thought that was great the degree, uh, and then I went to consulting, and I thought, gosh. All that on-site experience I had in, in, in Shell was fantastic. I can now consult on that. Um, and then I went to the UK Development Agency um, and actually having a consulting experience and a technical background was super useful when I went to the, uh, the emerging markets and, and looked at these issues there. Um, and that's kind of what's happened now because it, since I had the finance bit uh, that then followed that, um, I feel like almost the whole of it has actually enabled me to be in a really good position to actually you know, understand as far as you know, is possible you know, the different angles of, of a potential request and concern and you know, be able to process it quickly um, because I've kind of seen things from different sides. That's possibly a very good note to end on. So I think we can, we can wrap up there. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for your insights and for being so candid with us, for telling us about your experiences, all these different case studies, just a whole bunch of information, which should be easy to digest for anyone listening in. 